And you can take your Bibles and turn them with me to Genesis chapter 33. Genesis 33. And um, in this sermon, I will say absolutely nothing about the election, but I will say one thing right now. And that is, on Wednesday, the most cheerful and confident people in the world on Wednesday should be Christians. Because we're on the right side of history. We know where history is going in the end, and it is towards a global cosmic empire that is ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all I have to say about that. Genesis 33. God chose Jacob to be the heir of the covenant that God made to his grandfather Abraham. That from him, a great nation would come and dwell in the promised land of Canaan, and that this nation would be blessed so that they might be a blessing even to the ends of the earth. But Jacob's father, Isaac, loved his firstborn Esau more than him. And Isaac had every intention of transferring the blessing of the covenant to Esau. And in light of that, Jacob, who always trusted in his own strength and his own resources more than God's, tried to take matters into his own hands, and he ends up swindling the birthright and the blessing away from Esau. Esau plots revenge by murder, and Jacob flees into exile. And after 20 years, God commands Jacob to return to Canaan, but in doing so, he knows that he must confront Esau and make things right. And so, Jacob sends word to Esau, and he receives word back that his brother is on his way to meet him with 400 men. And as he awaits Esau's arrival, trembling with fear for his life, Jacob himself alone, having sent his family on ahead, Jacob is suddenly attacked in the middle of the night. He's attacked, but not by Esau. And, and Jacob wrestles with this stranger all through the night, and finally, near the end of this match, this man taps Jacob's hip, and that hip is immediately dislocated. And Jacob realizes that he is fighting no ordinary man, but he is fighting against God himself. And he no longer tries to win the fight. He can't. He's been brought to a point of extreme weakness, and all he can do is is hang on to his divine opponent, begging for blessing and casting himself on the mercy of God. And in that moment, he realizes with more clarity than, than ever that he cannot live life with a dependence on his own strength and his own wits and his own ability, that instead God's people must live exclusively in reliance on God's grace through faith. And God blesses Jacob, blesses Jacob with a new name. God says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, no longer will you be called trickster, no longer will you be be called deceiver, you are to be a new man, you are to be Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And how has Jacob prevailed? He has prevailed not in strength, he's prevailed through weakness because it is through weakness that the sufficient grace and strength of God is made manifest. And Jacob walks away from that encounter with God limping as a constant reminder of that, of that lesson. And based on the feedback I received after last week's sermon, it turned out to be an important lesson for some of you as well. But Jacob, after a physically and emotionally and spiritually draining night, still has unfinished business with his brother Esau. Because we just can't care about our relationship with God and not our relationship with other people. Those who've experienced peace and reconciliation with God must also seek it with others. And so, with that said, let's see what happens next. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. We are in Genesis 33. We stand here at Harbin's Church before the reading of the sermon text as a way of just reinforcing the fact that what we're about to read is not a fairy tale. It's not the opinions of men or, or anything like that. This is the very word of God coming from him to you this morning. Genesis chapter 33, we'll start at verse 1. 
and read on down through verse 18. God's word says, and Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, and then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. But Jacob said, no, please. If I found favor in your sight, then please accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I'll go on ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the, place of the, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made boots for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. Let's pray. Father, we receive your word this morning with eager expectation and anticipation Uh, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through this passage, Father. So help us now to have open ears to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So whenever you see repetition in a Bible passage, it's it's a good clue as to a main point, as something that you really ought to pay attention to. And um, one word that keeps coming up is is the word favor or, or grace, Uh, In the Hebrew, it's the same word. Uh, About half a dozen times, grace is explicitly mentioned, and and the concept implicitly comes up several more times. And so as we ponder chapter 33 together, I want us to consider the different manifestations of God's grace in this story. And the first thing I want us to consider is God's transforming grace. God's transforming grace. When, When I first moved to the south from the north, One of the biggest cultural adjustments for me was that there was not only a a church on every corner, but that there were churches full of people that claimed to be Christians, uh, claimed to have been touched by the grace of God, and yet their lives were not changed. It's a strange thing. It's an unbiblical thing. As I've said before, yes, God loves us enough to save us as we are, but he also loves us enough to not let us remain as we are. God's not just interested in saved people, he's interested in new people. Now, salvation is not about immediate perfection, but it is most certainly about a new direction. And as Jacob limps away from Peniel, it's a reminder that no one who truly encounters and embraces the living God and receives his amazing grace walks away unchanged. 
Now, Jacob wasn't converted at Peniel. I, I think he was already a believer, but at Peniel, God deepened his work in Jacob's heart. And we see in Jacob profound changes, manifestations of grace that, that can be seen in, to some degree in all of God's people, including a newfound courage. As Jacob lifted up his eyes and saw Esau coming with his 400 men, there's no reason for him to believe that Esau doesn't have hostile intentions. When the guy who has threatened to kill you is approaching you with a small army, that's a pretty reasonable conclusion. And in chapter 32, Jacob just flat out said to God, I am afraid of Esau. He is consumed by the sense of impending doom. And so Esau's forces approach. Jacob in verse two divides his family into groups, which isn't shocking. He did something similar in the last chapter for safety precautions. But but here we see him do something different. Verse three says that Jacob himself went on before them. That's very important because Jacob has been a runner and a hider his whole life hiding behind his mother and, and hiding behind a disguise as they, as they scheme to steal the blessing and trick Isaac, running from the rage of his brother Esau, hiding from Laban in the sense of putting off a confrontation for 20 years, secretly running away from him. In chapter 32, Jacob sends messengers ahead of him to engage Esau while he stays behind. And he sends wave after wave after wave of gifts for Esau. And each band of servants accompanying the gifts was to tell Esau, and Jacob is behind us. And then he sends his whole household ahead of him, and he hangs back. All of chapter 32, Jacob's hanging back, sending others ahead to engage his brother. But here he hangs back no longer. Text says Jacob went on before his family. He places himself in between Esau and his family. If his brother intends violence, he's going to be the first in line, the, the first line of defense between Esau and his wives and children. The first victim would be Jacob, and perhaps the others would have time to flee. Uh, David Felker says that the old Jacob would have gone to the comfort and safety of the back of the line. But this new Jacob has courage. He's willing to stand between potential danger and his family, yes, but also he's willing to look Esau in the eye and say, I am willing to be held accountable by you. Now, this does not mean that Jacob doesn't have any sense of emotional turmoil. Uh, no doubt he is trembling as he gets nearer and nearer to his brother, but one of the marks of a person who has met God and who's been changed by God's grace is a compulsion to move forward in obedience to God in spite of fear. Because whatever other fears he may have, the fear of God begins to eclipse and dwarf lesser fears. I love the, the title of Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God is Small. It's a great title, When People Are Big and God Is Small. And the idea there is that the thing that looms largest in our vision, in our mind's eye, and very often that is other people, uh, the thing that is biggest in our life is the thing that we will fear, and it is the thing that will control us. For most of chapter 32, the biggest thing in Jacob's sight was Esau. His angry brother loomed large in his mind's eye and dominated him. But when he met God at Peniel everything changed. At Peniel, Jacob, as afraid as he may have been of Esau, faced his greatest fear, which was the fear of being abandoned by God without God's blessing. Uh, that's why he was hanging on to God for dear life, even after his hip was dislocated. Better to die holding on to God than to live apart from him. Better to walk through life with a limp, with God at your side, than to be physically strong and yet alone. Uh, the most terrifying thing in the world was not the sword of Esau, but the lack of God's favor. And in that moment, God and his need for God loom larger in Jacob's sight than ever before, and everything changed. And the one who had seen the face of God could with confidence and courage now see the face of Esau. Jacob lays hold of that powerful truth that Jesus would proclaim to his disciples who themselves were about to face hostile, life-threatening circumstances and enemies. Jesus said, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, when the Bible talks about not being afraid, it doesn't mean 
that God's people are emotionless robots that will never experience the sense of fear. Instead, uh, the idea is that the more that you're consumed by the fear of God, the more that you're empowered to, to, with courage, face and overcome any other fear. That's precisely the point of Psalm 112. The psalmist writes, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. But in addition to the fear of God, the other critical thing that gives us courage is the confidence that the same God that you fear is actually also with you. Uh, that, that was what Jacob discovered at Peniel, and that is what is true of all believers. Psalm 118.6 says, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear what can man do to me. That is the great hope of all of God's people, uh, to know that if God is for us, who can be against us? So there's, uh, there's this newfound courage in Jacob, but also there's a newfound humility Not only does Jacob put himself in between Esau and his family, but notice we find Jacob bowing himself to the ground seven times until he comes near to his brother. This is remarkable because the old Jacob was arrogant. The old Jacob fought and clawed his way to supremacy, greedily grasping for what he thought should be his. He thought himself superior to Esau, more worthy of the blessing. Jacob's desire was to be in charge and to rule over others, especially to rule over Esau. He's fighting and grappling against Esau even as a baby in his mother's womb. But here in chapter 33, we find him bowing low. You can just imagine the scene. He, he, he's limping still. Remember, he still has the limp. He's limping towards Esau. And then he gets on the ground with his face to the dirt. And then he gets up again on that dislocated hip and limps closer to Esau. And he bows again. And he does this seven times. It, it was the way a vassal would approach a lord. It's extreme humility. What's more, you may have noticed that in their conversation, Jacob refers to Esau as his lord and he refers to himself as Esau's servant. That's particularly striking when you consider that the blessing that Isaac intended to give to Esau, but Jacob stole, uh, one, one of the things that Isaac had said in the blessing was, be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Technically, Esau should be bowing down to Jacob right now. But Jacob is humbling himself to the point where he will no longer try to greedily grasp onto things. He will instead show his brother Esau the proper respect and deference that he should. And he's gonna trust that God is going to exalt him in God's own way and in God's own time. This is a new Jacob. And as Jacob has become overwhelmed with a greater sense of the grace of God in his life, he's finally beginning to learn an important principle for all of God's people, that the way up is the way down. The way up is the way down. The the way to exaltation goes through the road of humiliation. And and that principle runs contrary to human nature. Because we tend to see ourselves as more important and more deserving than we actually are. We want to be applauded. We want to be liked and admired on on social media or, or to our faces. We want to be lifted up. We want to be made much of. That's the bent in all of our hearts. We would rather be in control and have others serve us and give us what we want. We're no different than Jesus' disciples. Jesus' disciples argued among themselves like little children. And they argued about who was the greatest among them. And Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. You think about it. Jacob is God's chosen one. It is his destiny to have Others bow to him and his progeny. But Jacob sets aside his rights. He sets aside his prerogatives. He will not lord it over his brother like he used to. He will not tightly grasp his rights as he used to. And he honors and he serves his brother, trusting God all the while. Now, friends, this this is when you know that the grace of God has invaded someone's life and gripped their hearts. An arrogant man... A proud man will not lower himself because he thinks he deserves something. 
He thinks he's entitled. Uh, and a man who persists in continual, unbroken arrogance calls into question whether he's really been touched by the grace of God at all. Because with the grace of God comes a simultaneous realization that we deserve nothing good of God, that we're entitled to nothing but God's judgment. And that realization causes our hearts to fight against our impulse towards self-exaltation and to instead walk humbly with God and with others. Because in God's economy, the way up is down. The one who is humbled, that's the one that's great. Some verses you may want to write down. I mean, there's many verses about this, but just a, just a couple. Psalm 138, 6. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty, the prideful, he knows from afar. Uh, Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Jesus himself said in Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And and that principle is best exemplified in Jesus himself, isn't it? Uh, Right after he said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, he then said, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the only man who has ever lived and ever will live that actually deserves exaltation and praise and honor. Yet the scriptures tell us that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But that maximum humiliation leads to maximum exaltation as Jesus is given the name above every name so that the entire cosmos might bow to him and confess his lordship. And Jacob here is experiencing God's transforming grace as he begins to look more and more like his greater son, Jesus Christ. And so we see aspects here of God's transforming grace in the life of Jacob. We'll see more of it through uh, the rest of the chapter, but, but an, another aspect of God's grace we see here is God's rescuing grace. God's rescuing grace. As, as Jacob is limping towards Esau, Esau is running towards Jacob. Hmm. Now, if you're reading that for the first time, that would make you nervous. You would expect Esau to be running towards Jacob, brandishing a sword, held high ready to chop Jacob's head off. Jacob's bowing to the earth. That would have been a perfect position for decapitation. But shockingly, Esau doesn't do that. Instead, text says, verse 4, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. You can imagine is Esau just, just pulling Jacob to his feet. Get up, man. What are you doing on the ground? And big, burly, hairy Esau giving Jacob a crushing bear hug. Jacob probably wincing in pain because of his hip from that all-night wrestling match. And what a gloriously surprising twist in this story, is it not? What in the world has happened to Esau? A lot of speculation from commentators. Could it it have been the passage of time changed Esau's disposition? Could it be that Jacob's gifts appeased Esau? Esau? While I don't doubt that a number of factors on a human level could be credited for the change, we must not forget, at the bottom of it all, the work of God in this. Uh, Let's not forget that just in the last chapter, Jacob actually prayed. He cried out to God, and he said, please deliver me from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, but you said, God, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea. Jacob prayed for rescue. Jacob prayed for God's mercy. And he prayed for it, pleading back to God the promises of God to do him good and to multiply his offspring. So, in light of that, should we be shocked? Should we be surprised that when someone prays to God in accordance with the promises of God, that God would actually do what we ask? Friend, if if you're in a situation 
where you're at odds with someone, you should go to God in prayer about it. Even if you think there's, there's just no way that that other person would ever want to make things right with God, all things are possible. Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. If God can do that to kings, he can do it to anybody. God ultimately is sovereign over the hearts of the people in your life. And while I cannot guarantee that your situation will turn out as Jacob's did, I can guarantee you that you'll never receive an answer to prayer if you don't pray. And, and, that, and that, if, that if God should be pleased to grant your request, He has the power to bring about the most amazing of reconciliations. Uh, the great missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, said that I must learn to move men through God by prayer alone. And so Jacob prayed. And as a result, he experienced something in Proverbs 16, 7 that says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's grace. This is grace. Uh, Jacob had deserved Esau's anger. He deserved to be struck down by his brother. But he cried to God for deliverance, and God rescued him. And folks, that's really a microcosm of God's grace and spiritual salvation. While Jacob deserved Esau's anger because of his sin, we deserve God's anger because of our sins against him. But the same God who graciously rescued Jacob from the hand of Esau will rescue anyone from his own hand who turns to him, pleading the promises of God back to God. Like that great promise, uh, who, whoever would call on the name of the Lord would be saved. God loves to show rescuing grace to undeserving sinners. Well, you can imagine this strange scene, these two big burly brothers embracing each other and crying, and and Esau's men all the while, Esau's 400 men surrounded by a flood of sheep and goats and rams. And finally, Esau gets his composure, and in verse 8, he asks, what is the meaning of this? What's the meaning of all these animals? And Jacob answers, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. As Jacob seeks grace from Esau, these gifts are meant to to not buy off Esau, but to demonstrate Jacob's true remorse and and to demonstrate his desire to make restitution for the damage that he's done. Uh, Remember, part of the blessing that Jacob stole from Esau had to do with material prosperity, Again, going back to chapter 27, when Isaac was blessing the one whom he thought was Esau, but it was really Jacob, Isaac says in, in Genesis 27, 28, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. That language is symbolic of abundant wealth. And Jacob in his willingness to give such a massive gift to Esau is an acknowledgement that, that he did Esau wrong by prematurely grasping for the blessing and he desires to make reparations for that wrong. Because true repentance, true repentance isn't just, isn't just mouthing the words, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, that, 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 that's how often we are, right? I'm sorry, can we just get over it and move on? That kind of, and I've seen that before in, in, in like counseling situations and the, and, and the husband has, has offended the wife and has committed deep sins against her and he's just impatient. I'm sorry, okay, now can we, we don't have to deal with this anymore. Let's just, just move on. Insensitive to the damage that he's done to, to his wife. Now that kind of callous attitude doesn't express a heart that's been touched by God's lavish grace. Instead, the truly repentant heart will seek to lavishly repair the wrongs done. Now, often we can't totally do that. It just depends on the circumstance. We can't totally fix the damage that we've caused. But but we have a heart to, to, to try. But not only is Jacob demonstrating genuine sorrow and repentance to Esau, he's also demonstrating trust in God. Remember, Jacob used to fight for what he thought that he should have. But now he is freely giving his wealth away, trusting, again, that God's going to bless him in his own time and his own way. So we've seen God's changing grace, God's rescuing grace. We also see in the story God's common grace. God's common grace. God's common grace. Uh, Common grace is a theological term that describes God's kind and generous disposition, not just towards believers, but to everybody, to all men. 
Uh, Jesus speaks of common grace in Matthew 5.45 when he says that the Father makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the just and the unjust. Everyone is treated in an incredibly kind way by God, including those who have despised the things of God, like Esau has. The Bible describes Esau as an unholy man and as an immoral man. He married pagan wives. He traded in his birthright for a bowl of tasty stew, a birthright that would have included spiritual leadership in the family and a special place in God's mission to redeem and bless the world. But Esau cared nothing about those things. Esau was a man of the moment. He's a passionate man. He's a man who who cares about immediate gratification. He's got no time for spiritual stuff. And the last word about him in the Bible is a sad word. It's it's in the New Testament. It's in Hebrews 12, which describes him as as one having an unrepentant heart. And, And yet we see something of God's kindness upon even someone like Esau, even in the fact that God moved Esau's heart away from murderous rage. <laughs> That's an act of God's generosity, kept Esau from committing murder. But we also learn more of God's kindness to him in verse nine. Jacob's trying to give him these gifts, and Esau says, I have enough, brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Esau has enough. He is enormously wealthy. He's enormously powerful. If he has 400 men, and, and I think he may have more, these are just the ones that are traveling with him. He's a little war party. And, and then you throw in wives and children and servants. We may be talking about a little kingdom of, uh, of a, at least a couple thousand people. Esau has been busy these past 20 years. His home base is Mount Seir, east of the promised land. And how, how do you think Esau ended up controlling all of that territory? Well, in Genesis 27, 40, Isaac predicts that Esau will live by his sword. So while Jacob built his wealth through shepherding, Esau did did so through war. And indeed, what we have with Esau is the foundation of the kingdom of Edom. And and we're going to see Edom reappear throughout the Bible story. So Jacob is rich, no question. But Esau is rich and powerful. Esau is a self-made man. But unlike Jacob, he is not a new man. Uh, There's a significant difference between Jacob and Esau, and and it comes out even in how they both talk. Jacob has repeatedly mentioned God and, and God's graciousness to him, but not a single spiritual syllable emerges from the lips of Esau. He gives no credit to God. Uh, God's not on his radar whatsoever. And in that sense, Esau has not changed at all in the past 20 years, not not in any profound sense. And the most tragic thing that Esau says in this chapter is, I have enough, my brother. I have enough. You're like, how's that tragic? (laughs) He thinks he has enough, but he lacks the one thing that he really needs. And, And this is the sense where the blessing of material prosperity can actually turn into a curse. Because because when we have a lot, uh, we can get this increasing sense of self-sufficiency. And the more self-sufficient you feel, the less you think you need God. And the less you think you need God, the less of a place he has in your life. It's not shocking that in Proverbs 30, Agur prays that he will not be poor. (laughs) We can all relate to that. But what is shocking to us, especially to us Americans, is that he also prays that he would not be rich. And why? Well, he tells you why. In Proverbs 30, verse 9, he says, Do not give me riches, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Mm. There is no more dangerous place to be than when you start talking like that or feeling that way in your heart. Most people actually wouldn't say anything like that, but they they feel that way, they act that way, they navigate life that way. In Mark 4.19, Jesus gives a similar warning when he talks about the word of the gospel going forth, but then he says that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. He calls it the deceitfulness of riches, And again, riches are are so deceitful because they make you think that you have all that you need. 
which inoculates us against the message of the gospel that says you lack the most important thing that you do need. That's why Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to be saved. It's hard, it's not impossible. With God, all things are possible. But common grace, common grace in and of itself is never sufficient for salvation. God must intervene and he must awaken rich men and all men to the reality of how destitute they actually are. And when that happens, then there's hope. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Unlike, uh, unlike Esau, Jacob has discerned his poverty of spirits. In the last chapter, he prayed to God and he confessed that he was not worthy of any of God's kindness to him. And, and, and here in chapter 33, Jacob says to Esau in verse 10, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand for I have seen your face which is like seeing the face of God and you have accepted me. Jacob sees a parallel between his experience with God at Peniel and this moment with Esau. And in both situations, Jacob recognizes that he deserved punishment, but instead has received unmerited favor. Jacob presses Esau hard to receive this gift. And it's interesting that in verse 11, Jacob finally says a word that he has held back from saying, a word that would have been a very touchy subject between them. He says, please accept my blessing. Mm, He says the word, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. If there was any, ever any doubt in Esau's mind, the point of all of this, the use of the word blessing would have driven it home. Jacob wants to make things right. I stole the blessing and to the degree possible, I want to give it back. And then like Esau, Jacob also says, I have enough. And of course, we know that Jacob, unlike his brother, really does have enough because no matter how much wealth he gives away, he has the Lord's grace and the Lord's favor in his life, and that's all that he really needs. Well, Jacob urges Esau to take the gift. Esau finally does, which is a sign that he has indeed forgiven Jacob and the relationship has been mended. So we see God's transforming grace, God's rescuing grace, God's common grace, but we also have something else interesting here, and I like to call it God's separating grace. God's separating grace. Maybe you'll see why I call it that in a moment. In verse 12, Esau seems interested in forging a new partnership. Hey, we're reconciled. You're good. I'm good. Let's forge on together. Let's go to Seir and join forces. Jacob is very tentative in his answer with various excuses. (laughs) Uh, The children are frail. The flocks are frail. Uh, we drive everyone too hard, uh, they might die. And then there, there may well be some truth to that because um, let's remember that, that, that Jacob and his whole household has been running hard from Laban and everybody is exhausted, surely. And, and, and there's no doubt that, that no way that Jacob and his whole household could move as fast as, as Esau's band of soldiers. Esau, though, responds, no problem, let me leave some of my men with you for escort. And then Jacob's like, why do that? (laughs) You go on ahead, and one day I'll see you in Seir. Jacob is resisting the invitation, and he never, as far as we know, ends up even ever going to Seir. Now again, there's there's, there's mixed uh, comments on this from the commentators. Uh, There's some here who just accuse Jacob of slipping back into the old Jacob, lying and deceiving. Uh, others say it's not that certain, actually. And really, Moses, the narrator, leaves this open-ended and ambiguous. You know, in, in um, uh, two chapters ago, Moses actually says, Jacob, you know, tricked Laban and, and left. There's, there's no comment here. He, he leaves it open-ended. Uh, Bruce Walke writes that really what you have here is nothing malicious, but, but instead it's Jacob trying graciously to disengage himself from Esau without offending him. He says Esau probably knows, Esau gets this, Esau probably knows that this is Jacob's polite way of declining his proposal. But why? Regardless of what you think of of, of that conversation, why, why is Jacob doing this? Why is Jacob resisting the invitation? 
Because it seems like it's really throwing cold water on this renewed relationship and on this wonderful moment. Y'all, there's a part of me that would have loved to have seen these brothers forge a partnership. Would have loved to have seen that movie. They were both formidable people on their own. Imagine combined. Uh, What a great team they would have been. Uh, What a wonderful little empire that they could have had together down in Edom. But there's one problem. There's one problem. Remember back in chapter 31 when God gave a word to Jacob for him to leave Laban? And God said, return to the land of your fathers. Return to Canaan. But Esau here is offering to take Jacob down a different path, somewhere that is not Canaan. But the thing is, is that God still has a mission for Jacob. And to fulfill that mission, Jacob had to get back to the promised land. In Genesis, to be outside the land is not a good thing. Uh, Edom was east of the land. East was never good in Genesis. East was associated with rebellion against God and being separated from his presence and being separated from his blessing. And, And folks, Esau didn't care about any of those things. Esau had his nice little self-sufficient life, so who cares about the things of God? But limping Jacob has embraced God's call on his life. And so even in this separation, there's the grace of God. Because as pleasant as a reconciled life with his brother would have been, it would not have been worth turning away from the glorious things the Lord had for him and the fulfillment of the mission. Family is important, but God's call is even more important. That was true then, it remains true now. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Some people trip up over that verse. Jesus talking about hating people. No, no, no. He, this, is, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is idiomatic language here. He, he, he means that you need to love them less than you love me. That's the point. Uh, the things of God must take precedence over every other relationship that you have. Let me say that again. The things of God must take precedence over every other relationship that you have. I don't care if it's blood family. I don't care if it's like boyfriend, girlfriend stuff or whatever. Things of God are the priority, must be. And so while Jacob and Esau are reconciled, that reconciliation only goes so far. There could, there, there could not be unity in the deepest sense. Uh, the two brothers ultimately are on two totally different trajectories. Even though they are friendly with one another, they can never be truly yoked together as one. It's much like your relationships with people in the world. Yes, you love the unbeliever. Yes, you're generous with the unbeliever. And yes, you certainly seek to make peace when necessary. But your bond to an unbeliever is only going to be so strong as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why? For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And so the reconciliation between Jacob and Esau, as wonderful as it is, is incomplete. It's an incomplete reconciliation and they go their separate ways. In fact... Whatever reconciliation the two brothers enjoy, uh, it doesn't hold. It doesn't hold for future generations. Later on, Esau's descendants, the Edomites, become a hostile force against Jacob's descendants, Israel, against the Jewish people. In Amos chapter 1, God accuses Edom of pursuing his brother with the sword, without pity, with with constant anger, and so God would punish Edom. And so we're left, we're left to wonder, is this, is this the, des- the destiny of all of Esau's people? Uh, hating the people of God, unreconciled to the Jews, doomed to destruction? Well, it would be their fate if Jacob had accepted Esau's invitation to go to Seir and, 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 and if he would have forsaken the mission of God. But because Jacob turns away 
and, and, and he, he's obedient to God by going back to the promised land, and he settles there. Because he does that, the nation of Israel is established. And through Israel comes a king named David, who, interestingly enough, finds himself at war against the Edomites. But again, going back to the prophet Amos, who began his book with a word about Edom's judgment, he ends his book with another word about Edom. In Amos chapter 9, God says, A day is coming where I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up his ruins and rebuild it as in, the, as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Not all of Edom will be lost in judgment. There is a remnant. Amos looks forward to a coming day when one day, one who comes from David will cause his people to possess a remnant of Edom. Now that can seem negative, that that God's people will conquer the remnant of Edom. But actually, this is a positive thing. It's a positive kind of conquest. Notice that Amos mentions not only the remnant of Edom, but all the nations who are called by my name. In other words, God is going to do something global, spreading to all the people groups of the world, which echoes that great Abrahamic promise that Jacob was the heir of that said, in you all the nations will be blessed. And so in the New Testament, along comes Jesus, Jacob's greater son and the son of David and the son of God. He comes as the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. He died for the sins, not just of Jacob's descendants, but for people from all nations. And after Jesus' resurrection, what happens? The Gentile peoples, the non-Jewish peoples, who were at one time estranged from Jacob's descendants, estranged from Israel, they begin to pour into the kingdom of God for salvation as they believe in and hope in Jesus. And in this way, the remnant of the nations are conquered and brought into the people of God. And interestingly, when that begins to happen, this causes a stir among some Jews who carried with them the old unreconciled racial grudges and animosities of the past. But in Acts 15, James, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, sees what is happening as a fulfillment of Amos 9. And in fact, he quotes Amos 9, and he says that this is happening, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. And so, in Amos 9, Edom stands as an example, as a representative of all the Gentile peoples. And Jesus ushers in a grand reconciliation between the descendants of Jacob and the rest of the world, including the Edomites. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2. He says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile, there's the word, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Two peoples, two groups, can never be fully reconciled to one another until they are first reconciled to God. That's why the reconciliation between Jacob and Esau was incomplete. One was reconciled to God, the other was not. But what happened that day in that reconciliation and in the sparing of Jacob's life, that set the stage for the greater global reconciliation to come through Christ. It set the stage for the gospel. I suppose in that sense, ironically, we can thank God for making sure that Esau did not strike down Jacob. Thank God for God's work through Esau. Never thought I'd say that. But that moment set the stage for the gospel. It set the stage 
for the good news that all who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ will be saved, will be forgiven, and will be reconciled not only to God, but then as a result, reconciled to one another so that all who believe will be true brothers, true sisters in Christ. And in that, the whole world will be blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the reconciling work that you are doing in the world that you've been doing for 2,000 years. Through the blood of Christ, men are reconciled to God. We recognize that we were at one time enemies of God. We were rebels against you. And it is our blood that should be shed. The wages of sin is death. And yet your son shed his blood as the representative of his people so that all who turn to you might be saved and pardoned and reconciled to you and made right with you. And then that reconciling work spreads to other people, to other believers, to to people who under other circumstances may despise one another and may even want to kill one another. And yet you bring in your people and you unite us and you make us truly brothers and truly sisters united in Christ. And we thank you so much for that. I pray for anyone in this room who has not yet been reconciled to God that they would be, that you would awaken faith in that man's heart and that woman's heart and that boy's heart and that girl's heart You'd bring them to yourself, make things right as they place their hope and faith in the work of Jesus, that they might be reconciled to you and then might be reconciled with the rest of us entering into the family of God. Thank you so much for the work that you do, and thank you so much for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.